What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone's having an amazing week so far. For those of you who didn't read the last newsletter that I sent on Saturday, I'm actually in the middle of moving right now. So I'm currently sitting in one of our guest bedrooms on the ground with no furniture recording this podcast. So excuse me if the audio is not as good as normal, but I wanted to jump on the mic today and talk about two topics specifically. First, Formula One dominance. I know everyone is probably aware Max Verstappen is winning every single race you can imagine. We're going to get into whether that matters or not for the sport's long-term growth. And then secondly, I want to talk about ticket prices in the NFL. Who's making the most money? Who's making the least money? How it's shared, etc. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this, so let's get right into it. All right, so let's start today's episode talking about Formula One. Now, many of you are probably aware Formula One feels like it has swept the United States specifically, but really the world over the last few years. This sport was incredibly popular for the last few decades, 50, 60 years, whatever it is. But over the last, we'll call it like five to seven years since Drive to Survive was introduced on Netflix, it has become immensely popular in the one market that it was never really popular, which is the United States. We went from having no races in the United States a decade ago to having three races this year in Miami, Austin, Texas, and Las Vegas. And the interesting part about this is Las Vegas is actually being hosted by Formula One. So those who have listened to my podcast before probably know that Formula One typically doesn't host any of the races themselves. What they do is cities or racetracks bid for the rights to host a Formula One race. So a place like Saudi or Silverstone or Miami or Texas or any other places, they pay Formula One a fee to host the race and then they're generally in charge of everything else, right? So they go out, they go sell the tickets, they sell the luxury suites, they do the food and beverages, they set up the concerts, they do everything. Formula One has guidelines, of course, for the track and everything else. But ultimately, the host venue is in charge of essentially everything else. But Las Vegas is the first race that Formula One is going to be hosting themselves. So they're building a permanent paddock building. It's massive in Las Vegas. The race is going to be taking place in November. They're going to be selling all the sponsorships. They're going to be dealing with the restaurants. They're going to be dealing with the licensing fees, the merchandise, all this stuff. Formula One's going to be doing itself upcoming. But Formula One's kind of in a tricky spot in the United States, I would call it. Now, at Drive to Survive's peak, which I believe was around 2021, a lot of people were coming into the sport. They had done some other things too. They were getting a little bit more active on social media. They were relaxing the rules. Back in the day, drivers couldn't, literally could not post on social media. Lewis Hamilton got fined for posting a Snapchat in the paddock. And that all changed, right? When Liberty Media bought the business for four point something billion dollars, they came in, they changed the rules with social media. They changed the regulations with the cars to try to tighten up the racing a little bit. They made the, the races more like music festivals. So there's a bunch more concerts. There's other things to do throughout the weekend. And it's made the world a difference. They actually gave away the rights to ESPN for free too because they wanted to try to grow in the US and they needed a good distribution partner. So like that was huge. They're now paying $75 million a year for the rights. And like that was a no-brainer, great decision. But what happened was something that was pretty weird was Formula One has never really been like a sport where every single year, every single driver can win. That's just not how it works. It's more an engineering competition than it's a driving competition. And what I mean by that is simple. Traditionally, it's whoever spends the most money is going to win, right? So some teams are spending four or $500 million a year while other teams were spending $100 million a year. And if your budget is five times bigger and five times bigger is in 400 million more dollars, you obviously have a pretty good chance of developing a better car than the other team. 
you have more employees working on it, you have better engineers, you have better parts, you have everything better than the other teams. So that was, you know, Red Bull, that was Mercedes, that was Ferrari, right? The best teams in the world, McLaren. And that has changed over the last few years. They introduced a cost cap, right? So essentially what it did in the simplest of terms was it regulated how much teams were able to spend on their car each year. And the reason behind that was simple. It was supposed to closen up or, or tighten the competition, right? So if you're only allowed to spend, you know, $150 million a year, and that's a budget that everyone can get behind, not only does it tighten up the competition, but it makes the teams more profitable. So that's what we've seen, right? Mercedes, for example, they went from, I think they were doing probably like $5 million in operating profit a year to now they're doing like $70 million in operating profit simply because they were able to, their, their budget decreased due to the fact that they're now a spending cap. Now there's things outside of that, right? A couple of the personnel aren't included in the spending cap. The drivers aren't included in the spending cap. So there's a few things to get around it and some nuance to it. But generally speaking, most of the teams are spending kind of in the same ballpark of money today. But what we've seen is that the engineering piece of this is still as important as ever. Red Bull has developed one of the best cars in Formula One history. They are incredibly dominant this year. So dominant that they have won all 12 races. Literally all 12 races they have won. Max Verstappen has won 10. Sergio Perez, Checo has won two. Now, not only have they won the races, they've essentially dominated the races. Red Bull has led 694 laps this season. All of the other teams combined, all nine of the other teams combined, have led 30 laps. So again, Red Bull has led 694 laps this season. All of the other teams combined have led 30. Max Verstappen has won eight races in a row. He's one shy of tying Sebastian Vettel's record of nine. And Red Bull has won more races in a row than any team in Formula One history. Now, the reason why this is interesting is because First off, I don't want people to think that I'm taking anything away from Max Verstappen. I wholeheartedly believe that Verstappen is one of the most talented drivers in Formula 1 history. He's incredible. He is very, 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 very good. But the Red Bull car is obviously in a league of its own right now. And you can say, oh, look how badly he's beating Checo. It is without a doubt. People who have driven the Red Bull car have said that Red Bull is specifically tailoring this car to Max Verstappen. I think there was a quote from Alex Albon a few years ago where he said, you know, when I was in the car, it's so difficult to be his teammate because uh, the sensitivity on the car is so high. He likened it to playing Call of Duty and turning the sensitivity all the way up, right? So he's like, just when you touch the wheel, it's just really, really, really sensitive. And it's more sensitive than any other Formula One car he had ever been in. So obviously, you know, there's other drivers that can handle that better than some others. And, and Checo, Sergio Perez seems to be one of those drivers. But ultimately, and that's the right thing to do, right? If you have a world-class driver and you have the opportunity to win consecutive championships, you should probably tailor the car to that person. And that's what Red Bull has done. So kudos to them. But if you zoom out and you look at what Liberty Media is trying to do from a sporting perspective and a business perspective, they have one clear initiative, and that is to expand the sport internationally into the United States. And the reason for that is simple. The United States is the world's largest and lucrative and most lucrative sports market in the world. It's the same reason why the NFL makes nearly $20 billion a year, even though they have smaller audiences than virtually every major professional soccer league in Europe. It is the same reason why Formula One wants to come here, because they know that they can expand the market cap of the business from $4.5 billion to $20 billion that they've already been offered by Saudi to buy the business. So I don't need to explain this to you guys. You get it. U.S. market is freaking huge. Every sports league in the world that plays internationally or competes internationally wants to be here and wants to be a part of the United States. But it feels like the hype behind Formula One is dying down just a little bit this year. And let me explain. So I talked about 2021 earlier and Drive to Survive. 
that was the peak because the series had been out for three, four, or five years at that point. And the, the racing that year was absolutely incredible. It literally came down to the final lap of the season between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton in Abu Dhabi. Now, we don't need to get into the specifics about who was right and who was wrong. That is literally debated every single day online. But with what cannot be debated is that it was one of the best seasons in Formula One history. I've been watching Formula One for many years, and it was an incredible season, literally down to the wire. And it timed up perfectly with the height of Drive to Survive. There were so many new fans coming in every single weekend. And not only was it great racing, it was an incredible rivalry. These two drivers didn't like each other. They were bumping shoulders. They were fighting on the track. People were complaining about penalties. They were crashing into each other. The last lap in Abu Dhabi, there was literally controversy, right? So it was like from a dramatic standpoint, it was the best you could possibly do. And then what happens here? We follow it up with Red Bull winning last year again, right? The, the team constructor championship also. And then this year, they're just incredibly dominant. The team has built one of the best cars in Formula One history, and they're absolutely crushing it. And again, this is not something that's new for Formula One. There have been teams throughout history that have dominated. McLaren is the team that Red Bull recently passed for the most consecutive wins. I think they won 11 consecutive races in the late 1980s. Aaron Senna and Alan Prost, they had 15 poles and 15 wins in 16 races that year, right? So obviously they were just incredibly dominant. Williams has gone through similar stretches. Ferrari has gone through similar stretches. Red Bull has gone through similar stretches. Mercedes most recently went through a similar stretch where they won eight consecutive Constructors' Championship uh, starting in 2014, and they won 16 races that year alone, right? So, like, this happens. It happens in Formula 1. Again, it's more of an engineering competition than it is a racing competition. Some of these drivers are just so close talent-wise that the difference in the car makes a huge difference. And that's that's very well true, and that's correct. But the problem here is that it's twofold, in my opinion. One, when you're trying to expand to a new market like the United States— New fans have a hard time taking that in, right, and being convinced to go watch these races if you know right after the first lap who's going to win. Like Verstappen is literally winning races by 30 seconds with the engine turned down, not even trying his hardest. There was one race where he pitted on the last lap and lost 20-something seconds just to go get the fastest lap and still won by several seconds, right? Like that's how confident he is in his car right now, to pit on the last lap of a race, Right. We've seen it time and time again. What happens if, you know, a tire gets stuck? What happens if the pit stop gets messed up? What happens if you get a penalty? Whatever. There could be a million things that go wrong. He's that confident in the car and his team right now that he's willing to go do stuff like that because he knows that he is much, much, much faster than everyone else. Even his own teammate, you know, he passed him last race. I don't, I don't remember what lap it was, but he started six on the grid. And then before lap 20, he had already passed his teammate. He had got all the way up. He passed Hamilton. He passed Leclerc. He passed Checo. He passed all these people, right? And he led the race and then won by 30-something seconds. So this is one of those things that he's been so dominant that when you're trying to bring new fans in, they don't like it, obviously. But more importantly, we've already seen a little bit of a decline. So Spa was one race. Miami was another race, even in the United States, where viewership was down year over year, right? And that's not good for a sport like Formula One that was on such a strong trajectory. Literally, my timeline was full of people just talking about Formula One every single weekend. And... Look, for a sport that's been around for, you know, almost 100 years at this point, you don't necessarily want to cater to new fans and change rules and do all these sort of things. But ultimately, if you want to expand and continue to grow the business and do what Liberty Media is clearly attempting to do, then you need to bring in new fans in new markets. And the United States has been a big piece of that, so much so that they're betting hundreds of millions of dollars 
based on their recent land purchases in Las Vegas and the races that they're trying to host there for the next decade, that that's going to be the case. And I attended some of these races, right? I went to Miami uh, two consecutive years now, the first year with Mercedes and the second year with McLaren. And both years were absolutely incredible as someone who loves the sport. But the thing that I noticed was there it was a clearly different appetite for the race on the ground from the two different years. The first year, you had every celebrity you could possibly imagine was there. It was at the height of Drive to Survive. It was right after the big 2021 season. LeBron James was there. All these people were there, right? This year, it was different. It was still packed. They actually ended up selling more tickets. That was mainly because they opened up more stands, though. And the buzz in and around Miami and the racetrack just felt a little different. It didn't feel as special as the year before. And some people might say, you know, that's going to be Vegas this year. That's going to be Vegas. They're going to take that shine away from Miami. And maybe that's true. I'm hoping to be able to go out to Vegas too, and I'll let you guys know if that's the case. But there was a clear difference, not only in on the ground, but we've seen in the TV numbers too. The audience has started to decline already when it comes to certain races, especially later on this year, right? Maybe not the first couple of races, but race, you know, 10, 11, 12, whatever it is. Those audiences are declining in the United States because I've heard this from people on Twitter. I've heard this from friends and family. No one wants to tune into a race where you know who's going to win by 30 seconds, right? And this isn't something where I think that Formula One should implement new rules halfway through the season to close the gap. This is on the other teams. They need to figure this out. Stefano Domenicali, who is the CEO of Formula One, has already indicated that they're looking to do certain things, maybe after this year or in the next couple of years, to basically lessen the degree that these uh, dominant runs can continue for, right? Because all the same things that we just talked about, McLaren, Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull, whoever it is. It's not good for the sport for one team to dominate for five, six, seven years, eight years at a time. So if there's a strategic advantage that a team is able to develop through the engineering process of their car, in my opinion, that's great. That should be rewarded. That's part of the competition. That's fantastic. But ultimately, you can't let that go on for seven or eight years if you're trying to build an audience and build the sport to become a big global brand. It's just not possible. So again, there's certain people that love tracking the engineering side of this thing. I don't think that that's every fan. I actually don't even think it's the majority of fans, but that's clearly part of the process. I don't want that eliminated from the sport, but I do think that they have to do some things to narrow the gap. I think that the other teams have to catch up and it's not something right now where all of a sudden Mercedes or McLaren or Aston Martin or any of these other people are going to come overnight and eliminate 30 seconds of time from a race, right? Like Verstappen is literally more than a second better than some of these teams per lap in race pace. You cannot allow that to happen it's absolutely unbelievable. And at some point too, again, I think Max is a, a superbly talented driver. It almost diminishes what he does in some aspect to some fans. I would imagine, right? Not for me. Again, I understand how talented he is. Everything that he's done on the junior circuit, you know, he entered Red Bull when he was just a kid. He's dominated over the last few years. He's incredibly, incredibly talented. But if the average fan looks at him and they just say, oh, his car is amazing. Well, that's not good for him, right? So again, I, I'm sure he enjoys winning races and he doesn't necessarily want people to be competing with him at the front of the grid. But I would argue that it might diminish a little bit of his stardom because everyone knows that he is an unbelievable car. And Red Bull to me right now, how are they winning races by 30 seconds? You're putting one of the world's best drivers, right? You arguably one of the, you know, if not one top two, top three, top four drivers in the world in the best machinery in the world. And that's what happens with Max Verstappen winning every race. So I don't expect this to change overnight. But more importantly, what I would say is that Liberty Media needs to be careful if they want to continue to grow in the United States. 
because I've already experienced it. Some of my friends, some of my family members are already starting to lose interest in the series that they only started to watch, you know, three, four years ago. So Liberty Media needs to be careful. They need to tighten things up. The races need to be closer. We can't go in after lap one knowing exactly who's going to win the race. Because even in times where there were dominant teams, the two drivers on each team were still competing with each other, right? We had Sebastian Vettel that was being pushed. Lewis Hamilton was being pushed by Nico Rosberg. You obviously had Prost and Senna. We had a bunch of other teammates that were pushing each other. And that's obviously not the case today. Max is on a completely different level than Sergio is in the car. The times reflect that. The races reflect that. And Formula One needs to be on the lookout for diminishing returns in the United States because now they're putting real money into this stuff, right? They're hosting these races themselves. They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on Las Vegas specifically in year one. Year one, we're not even counting the next nine years that they already have on the calendar for the Las Vegas race. This is year one. It would be a real shame if this dominance continued for three, four, or five more years and Liberty Media ends up blowing, you know, a couple hundred million dollars in the United States and seeing a lower level of returns than they would have if these races were much closer. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. All right. So the next topic I want to talk about today is NFL ticket prices. So a great article came out this week from Sportico. Kurt Bittenhausen wrote it talking about ticket revenue share in the National Football League. So for those of you that don't know how this works, every team is able to go sell their own tickets, right? It's part of their local revenue. But they're required to share 34% of their total home ticketing revenue with the other teams in the league, right? So if you're the Dallas Cowboys and you're making more money than you know the Cincinnati Bengals, you're sharing 34% of that revenue with them and with all the other teams in the league. This is done to help smaller market teams, right? So the bigger market teams are giving away some of their money and helping smaller market teams. Again, rising tide lifts all boats. So there's a few caveats to this, right? There's things that have to do with stadium renovations or new construction where you're able to lower the amount that you have to share. So it changes things up a little bit, but Generally speaking, 34% of all ticket revenue is being shared throughout the league. But of course, all the teams make different amounts of money. So Sportico broke down through their sources who was making the most. Number one on the list last year was the San Francisco 49ers. They finished the year with $136 million in net gate revenue from general seating and club seating. Talking about luxury suits, suites are not included in this, right? So just club seating and general seating, they made $136 million last year. The second team on the list was the Dallas Cowboys. Number three was the Las Vegas Raiders. Number four was the New York Giants. Number five was the Philadelphia Eagles. And if you go all the way down the list, the bottom three clubs were the Cincinnati Bengals, Jacksonville Jaguars, and Arizona Cardinals. And the disparity between the top to the bottom is quite large. Again, the San Francisco 49ers generated the most net ticket revenue in the NFL last year at $136 million. The Arizona Cardinals generated the least at $58 million, right? So number one, 136, number 32, 58 million. So there's a few things to note with this kind of stuff because obviously some of this is getting spread out evenly throughout the different leagues, but there's teams that share stadiums, right? So the Rams make significantly more money than the Chargers do at SoFi Stadium. And the reason for that is quite simple. They charge more money for the same amount of tickets than the Chargers do. Same things with the Giants and Jets. 
Although the Jets have increased season ticket prices, I think it was 10% this year due to the arrival of Aaron Rodgers and their team being better. There's another part of this too, where the teams that go internationally don't get that revenue either. The NFL used to make up for the shortfall in local revenue because those teams were going internationally to play a home game. But now that every team is required to go play an away game, technically, internationally, they no longer do that. So there was teams like the Arizona Cardinals and the Jacksonville Jaguars, which finished 31st and 32nd. Both those clubs had their ticket revenues ding this year by hosting games outside the United States. The Cardinals were in Mexico City and the Jaguars were in London as part of the international series. And they would have actually ranked higher than the Bengals had they not gone internationally. Right. So some of this is is kind of difficult to explain over a podcast. But generally speaking, what you need to know is that the 49ers are making the most money out of anyone in the NFL on ticket prices today. The Cincinnati Bengals, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and the Arizona Cardinals are making the least amount of money on ticket prices today. A lot of this has to do with not only club seating, but it has to do with the amount that you're able to charge per tickets. If you look at the Raiders specifically, they finished third in net revenue for ticket sales last year in the NFL, despite selling the fifth fewest tickets in the NFL. Now, they obviously have a new stadium, Allegiant Stadium, and they're charging higher prices. But Sportico reported that they also hold back a certain number of their tickets to increase the prices through dynamic pricing of these tickets. So they don't flood the primary market immediately and say, Here, here's all the tickets we're going to get. We see this all the time. The Lakers do it. Inter-Miami recently did it with uh, Lionel Messi's debut. A lot of teams do this to increase the total price that could be paid. Other teams like the Patriots rank really high despite selling a lower amount of tickets because of their smaller capacity. They're able to charge more for these games. So there's things like that, right, with the Giants, obviously the Raiders, I just mentioned the Patriots, teams like that, the Rams, they're able to charge more money than either their counterparts would charge in the same stadium or teams that are selling the quantity of tickets that they're able to sell would get from a revenue basis too. So again, while there's nothing absolutely groundbreaking in this revelation, it's just one of those things that you want to keep a tab on if you're interested in the business of the NFL, because this is the stuff that ultimately fuels salary caps, right? It fuels franchise valuations. It fuels P&L statements for each team. It's an incredibly big part of the local revenue system outside of national media rights, sponsorships, concessions, all that kind of stuff, right? It's ticket sales. It's a huge piece of this. And there are teams that are doing significantly better than others, a la the 49ers versus the Jaguars or the Bengals or other teams like that. And winning helps, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be leading the league, a la the Bengals. And this is also one of those things that can change from year to year. When Tom Brady went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers a few years ago from the New England Patriots, their franchise valuation changed overnight because they were selling more tickets. They went from, I think it was 32nd in the league in merchandise sales to first in the league. Sponsorships obviously increased. So like the business of a franchise can literally change overnight. Obviously, Tom Brady is an extreme example. A guy like Lionel Messi is an extreme example. LeBron James is an extreme example. But Patrick Mahomes wasn't an extreme example when he was drafted, and he has become an extreme example. So this stuff can change rather quickly and rather dramatically, and it's one of the things that you should watch if you're interested in team valuations or the future of the league in general. But that's it for today. Thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please go leave me a five-star rating on Apple, on Google, on Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast. Have a great week, and we'll talk later this week.